2: everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Annabella Breck, and today we'll be talking to Megan Kate Nelson about her new book, The Three-Cornered War, The Union, The Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West. Megan Nelson, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Megan, I wonder if you could kick things off today by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure, of course. I
0: was born in Colorado uh, and lived most of my early life there until I went off to college, Uh, did my undergraduate degree in history and literature at Harvard University, and then taught for a little while, uh, taught English classes on the secondary level, and then went off to grad school at the University of Iowa uh, in American Studies. So all of my training has been interdisciplinary, which I think has shaped a lot of my work in that I am very happy um, and open to using a wide variety of sources in all of the work that I do, um, particularly as I started to focus in my dissertation work more on um, environmental studies. I started to look at all kinds of different ways that we can access landscape histories, um, including personal on the ground experience and scientific data, meteorology, things of of that sort. Um, So I started my career as, uh, as I was saying, as an environmental historian of the Southeast. And my dissertation was a cultural history of the Okefenokee Swamp in southern Georgia and northern Florida. And from there, as I was mucking around in the swamp, I noticed a lot of ruins in their midst. And so became really interested in destruction as a process and as an idea and a lived experience. And that... Propelled me into my second book, um, Ruin Nation, which is about the Civil War uh, and d- four different kinds of destruction um, involved in that conflict, um, which was the destruction of cities and houses and forests and bodies. Um, and I think if you talk to most people who do Civil War history, once you start doing it, it's very hard to stop. Um, so, um, I continued my Civil War work into my third book, which is um, the book that we're going to discuss today, The Three-Cornered War. Um, But instead of focusing on the Southeast, I have come back home in a way uh, to the West and the Southwest to really figure out what the Civil War was like in that theater. Uh, Because growing up in Colorado, I had actually never heard that there was any kind of Civil War history that involved Colorado soldiers, that involved indigenous peoples living um, in the West um, or anywhere West of the Mississippi, um, really. And so I became really interested not only in what had gone on uh, in the West during the 1860s, but also why um, both Westerners and most Americans really have never heard about this theater of the war, or really have considered it uh, as part of Civil War history.
2: Great, thank you for that. And how did you come to write the Three
0: Cornered War? So this this was part of my process. Um, as I was saying, I kind of was embroiled in Civil War history, not only writing *Ruin Nation* but also teaching a lot of courses um, to undergrads and graduate students in Civil War history. And when I Found out that there were these couple of battles: um, Valverde, Apache Canyon, and Glorieta Pass between Union and Confederate soldiers. I really was I was shocked uh, to hear about that. Um, shocked to know that there were Colorado soldiers involved in that. And then as I started to research it, um, I became really aware that this was much larger than just a handful of battles between Union and Confederate soldiers. This was, in fact, as the title of the book suggests uh, a three-cornered war between the Union, the Confederacy, and Native peoples, and that particularly Apaches and Navajos were very deeply involved um, in fighting for control over the West. And so this is what kind of led me to the larger topic and trying to convey the fullest possible history of the Civil War in this region, uh, which really took place between 1861, the summer of 1861 and the summer of 1868, which is a much longer trajectory than most Civil War historians um, uh, and a lot of military historians will accept. Uh, But part of this recent move um, toward considering other theaters of the war and toward uh, looking at multiple kinds of participants in the war is in fact a broadening out not only of geography, but also of chronology. So we don't necessarily abide by the traditional Civil War chronology of the firing on Fort Sumter in April of 1861 to Appomattox in April of 65. So um, the timeline in the Three-Cornered War is uh, longer um, and has different kind of pinpoints uh, where the war in the West really um and, you know, sort of important moments um, that shape its trajectory.
2: The history of the American Civil War in the Continental West, as you show in the book, and as you just explained to us so well now, is very vast in scope. Yet driving your book about this vast historical landscape are the experiences of nine individuals. Why take this approach?
0: So I figured out, <clears throat> two things early on um, in the research process. Uh, one was that there were many different stories to tell uh, about the civil West. There, were, It had a lot of moving parts. There were a lot of communities involved. They were moving all over the West at different points. They were coming together in different places and times. And I knew that was going to be complicated uh, to tell this story and to really tell it fully from all of these different perspectives. Um, I also knew that I wanted to really write this book differently than my previous two books. Um, Trembling Earth and Ruined Nation are pretty traditional academic books, uh, you know, with an introduction and um, four or five thematic Uh, chapters and then a conclusion. And they're really quite argument-driven because that is the academic style. That was how I'd been trained um, and how I'd learned to write about history. So I At this point, I wanted to write this book differently. I thought that it had trade potential in that I thought that I could pitch this idea um, to an agent and an editor and get a contract uh, with a publishing house that did a lot of trade book history to sell to more general readers. And so I knew that The Three-Cornered War would be a narrative history. So and what that generally means is more driven by plot and action and characterization rather than argument. I mean, the arguments are still there, but they're not driving the book forward. Um, And when I started thinking about what that would entail, I mean, I knew that I could write a pretty straight up narrative history that I could just go from 61 to 68, uh, write a series of chapters involving all of these people who I wanted to write about. But I wanted to kind of challenge myself as a writer. I had also, by this point, um, left academia. I had decided that I wanted to write full time. So I had no real investment in in writing in a traditional academic way. And as I was thinking about how to organize the book and what the best way might be to really bring readers in and to put them on the ground in the Southwest um, with all of these major players and the conflict. I had actually been reading and watching um, the Game of Thrones um, series and had been sort of amazed at why I, when I turned to the novels, I was kind of amazed at why I was continuing to read them because normally I'm not drawn to really violent and misogynistic fiction. And so I was like, why am I still turning these pages? This is insane. Um, And that's when I kind of looked at the structure of the novels and what George R. R. Martin is doing, which is so genius. And a lot of other fiction writers actually use this. I mean, have been increasingly using this narrative strategy is to give you multi-perspective narration so that you are moving from one person. um, You'll have a chapter on one person, then you'll move to the next. You'll come back um, to major characters later. Um, And what this means is it really creates a sense of anticipation in the reader, um, while also simultaneously giving the reader this really in-depth look at one person and what that person's doing, what their community is doing. Um, It allows you to really do some pretty deep description uh, on landscape and movement and what people's lives are actually like, because I think that's what's missing in a lot of, of history, especially if it's really argument driven, is that you know, sometimes these big ideas and these movements and actions kind of happen and we don't really find out a lot about the lives of the people, you know, who are actually doing these things and experiencing these things. Um, you know, what did they eat? What did they like? You know, what, how did they experience uh, really cold winters? Um, you know, they're people in the past, obviously, but they, they lived as we live, you know? So we find these kinds of things interesting, uh, if people's Instagram feeds are any indication, um, what they like to eat and where they like to go. Um, and the things that kind of motivate them, we're really interested in. And so, um, so what I decided to do was to, take my nine people and structure the book, uh, much like Game of Thrones, through multi-perspective narration. So if you look at, uh, at the table of contents, which I think you can um, do online, uh, you will see that each chapter is named for a person in the book, except for there are three chapters that are not, and those are battles in which multiple people uh, in the books come together. So in those chapters, you'll see these conflicts on the ground again, from multiple points of view. Um, and what was also driving kind of my choice of these people, I wanted to um, be able to talk about every single kind of campaign and every movement happening in the Civil War West, which is why, you know, there are nine people. But um, I also needed, and I think this is very common um, for all historians, that we we need enough sources, right, to give us all that good material to to help us build that story. So it was important for me to find people not only who I felt could really, you know, take the reader along and and show them what was happening during this period in the 1860s Southwest, um, but also people who had either produced a lot of letters or diary entries or reports um, in their own voice or about whom other people had written a lot. Because um, it will probably not surprise you to know, Annabelle, or your listeners to know uh, that the, the most difficult kind of people's lives to access uh, were the women. Um, Juanita and Louisa Camby um, did not, I did not have any kind of first person traditional sources from them. Um, I only had one letter that I found from Louisa Canby in her own handwriting. And that was from much later in the war, um, from 1864 in Louisiana. So they had not kept, you know, kind of the traditional records that I would use as a a Civil War historian to kind of figure out their lives. But uh, they were prominent people in their communities and people wrote about them. Um, and in terms of Juanita, um, who is Navajo, her descendants had, you know, recorded her life experiences and had told stories about her. So the oral histories about her uh were there and very useful and informative. And um Juanita also left some um material culture behind. Um so she was a weaver um, and she left at least one textile that we know about. Um, so there were records. They also, it was helpful that Juanita, both Juanita and Louisa Canby, were married uh, to very high profile military leaders in their communities, um, Manuelito and Richard Canby, respect, respectively. Um, and they produced a lot of records. And so, because um, Louisa and Juanita went with Uh, their husbands, um, most of the time during this period, I could track their movements. So that was very helpful. So that's the way that you build stories out of um, all different kinds of sources that you can, you have to get creative when there are these kinds of archival silences, um, but it can be done and you can actually create a fully rich and pretty detailed um account of someone's life even if they don't leave a first person um record behind but um the rest of these of of the nine um there was a lot of documentation um of their words and their actions and um you know there are always some holes um You know, there's a period of time for Alonzo Ickes, who was a Union soldier and a a gold miner who had been in Colorado for a couple of years. Um, There's a period of time in his diary that's just a total blank, um, a couple of months during his service in Santa Fe. And there's just one entry that notes that that he was shot in the leg you know, with no other, no other information um, about how that came to be. Um, So, you know, just like, like we all do in our work, you deal with those um, silences, however you can and try to fill in those blank spaces. But it was really, it was fun and challenging to do this kind of research, which basically was the, the research and writing of nine kind of mini biographies, and interweaving them together while still making arguments about the significance of uh, the West during the Civil War.
2: Part one introduces us to this cast of characters that you've managed to um, pull out of the archive and material trail that is left, um, while also setting the stage for the expansion of the American Civil War beyond state borders. What does this fissure look like from Dine Piquea and Epatria? So in part one, uh, the reader meets
0: Mangus Coloradas, who is a 70-year-old war leader uh, of the Chiricahua Apache people, whose homeland, um, Apacheria, extended from the Dragoon Mountains, um, a little bit east of Tucson, to the Rio Grande, and then further south, also into Mexico, um, and Readers also meet Juanita, um, who I've already talked about a little bit, who is a young woman um, living in Diné Bikéyah, a huge area of land belonging to the Navajos that extended um, from just west of Santa Fe and Albuquerque to the San Francisco mountains um, in what um, Anglos called Northwestern New Mexico Territory. Um, so it's it was really interesting to see, um, you know, because one part of the narrative is tracking um these Confederate and Union Army movements during the summer and fall of 1861 into the winter of 61-62. And so to to try and figure out what Apaches and, and Navajos really kind of both did in response to this and 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 how they understood it. And I think What happened was that they first understood um, this conflict between the Union and the Confederacy as a victory of their own, um, because Mm -hmm. American soldiers began to evacuate all of the forts that the U.S. government had built in their homelands in the 1850s. Um, Louisa Canby's husband, um, Colonel E.R.S. Canby, who she called Richard, was ordering all of these soldiers from these forts um, in central uh, New Mexico territory, which at that time actually extended from the Rio Grande to the California border. Um, Arizona, as we know it today, did not exist uh, yet until 1863. And so he was recalling all of these soldiers from forts from the Rio Grande all the way to Tucson, withdrawing them um, to the Rio Grande to meet this Confederate uh, invasion threat. And so what Apaches and Navajos are seeing is after, you know, they were in the midst of a of a decades-long struggle against Americans and um, the U.S. Army um, in their homelands. And so they saw these forts emptying out and they made a very reasonable assumption, which is that their raiding and attacks on these installations in recent years had been successful and that Americans were withdrawing from their homelands. And this was potentially the beginning of kind of a new era for them um, to assert their power and their sovereignty uh, in, in this region. Then when they began to see uh, these really rather large union army, union and Confederate armies, moving along the roads, um, through their homelands in some cases, or just adjacent. Um, then they saw the, the civil war as an opportunity, um, for a couple of things. Um, one for raiding. So when U S soldiers were evacuated, um, this, all the civilians who were living kind of nearby these forts across the Southwest Believed that they had no defense then um, against any um, Apache or Navajo raids on their sheep herds or their horses um, or their or their ranches, and so they many of them kind of packed up and started moving. Some moved west toward California, other moved others moved east toward the Rio Grande. Um, and when they hit the road like that, they actually made themselves quite vulnerable um, because in a desert landscape. Um, like there is in the Southwest, there are lots of open, really open spaces with no real protection. And when you put yourself in a single line in an open landscape like that, um, you are really, really vulnerable um, to attacks by anyone who should wish uh, to attack you. So there, both Apache and Navajo raiders had opportunities Um, to do as they had done um, for many years, which was to make quick strikes um, on enemies' positions to siphon off a lot of animals that they would later use um, to shore up their trade relationships in the region. Um, And they did this uh, in relation to civilian wagon trains, and then they also uh, began to um, raid Union and Confederate wagon trains and army camps and corrals. Um, and these were the real boon because um, it it's kind of hard to imagine, especially when we, we think about the Civil War in the East and the many tens of thousands of soldiers that are on the move during that conflict. In the West, the armies are much smaller. they are about three, two to three thousand men um, on the move uh, on either side uh, or on both sides. Uh, in the early 1860s. But in the context of the Southwest, this is a huge number of people. Um, When the Confederates come from Texas, they march um, almost 700 miles from uh, San Antonio, Texas, to El Paso, and then north um, to Fort Thorn in New Mexico territory. And they have 3,000 men, which means around 3,000 horses and a, a cattle herd. Of more than 3,000 animals. And again, all of them are kind of strung out along the road um, in order to manage water resources. And they were just getting, the soldiers record this in their diaries, they're getting attacked very regularly. Um, uh, The Confederates mostly by Apaches and sometimes Comanches on the road, um, and then Union soldiers by Navajos um, and some Mescalero Apaches. So they have the civil war creates these conditions um, for native peoples in the region to really accelerate um a practice that they had already been engaging in again for years and was the kind of central point in their economic relationships um, with other native peoples and with Hispanos in the Southwest. Um it was also an opportunity for revenge. Um Apaches in particular had been had declared war against Americans um, in February 1861, in the wake of a um, a dispute and a, a conflict in at Apache Pass in what is now Arizona um, in in that February when U.S. soldiers had come after. Um, Cochise and and the Apaches who were who were there and accused them of kidnapping a young boy who had been uh, living on a ranch closer to Tucson and um, you know Cochise had done nothing of the sort the sort but he had promised to investigate uh, but the U- the U S soldiers had taken some members of his family hostage um, and tried to take him hostage um, and what followed was a was a pretty bloody but short um, battle um, the U S ended up. Hanging several um, Apaches from the trees at Apache Pass, Uh, and this uh, incident, which was remembered in in Chiricahua um, culture as "Cut the Tent," uh, really provoked um, Chiricahuas into an all out war against Americans, and so they were seeking revenge um, for that. Uh, kind of what they saw both as a, a, portray- a betrayal and also um, an incursion into their territory and attack on their people, and so this was an opportunity um, to take revenge on Americans, either civilians or military personnel um, who were trying to travel through their territory, um, and it was also an opportunity, I think, for them to exert their power, and in some ways to to both reassert power and retake parts of their territory that they had lost um, to American incursions and fort fort building um, during the 1850s. So when they saw all of these soldiers leave, um, many groups moved in. Uh, They either uh, looted and and um, destroyed the forts if the the soldiers had not done that already um, or kind of occupied and used them in other ways and you know these forts were were symbols of American military conquest so for um, native peoples to sort of take back these forts and to reintegrate them into their territories. Um, was an important step. So the Civil War is creating all of these conditions um, in the Southwest um, and really provoking a lot of different kinds of reactions and different scales um, among the indigenous peoples who live there.
2: Obviously, Juanita, Mengus Colorados, and other indigenous peoples have a very different view of the conflict than characters like John Baylor, James Carlton, and John Clark. Their respective commitments to the Union and the Confederacy obviously set these actors apart. Yet when the reality of American imperial ambitions are added to the mix, the lines between Northern and Southern begin to blur. How do these imperial aspirations and objectives shape military initiatives on either side?
0: Yeah, so so this is one of the interesting things. I mean, white Northerners and Southerners shared many of experiences and attitudes toward warfare during the civil war in general. Um, this is one of the things I found out while researching my previous book on, on destruction is that, that white Northerners and Southerners saw destruction in very similar ways. Um, they also shared this idea that the control of the West would provide a couple of really important things. Um, first gold. Um, so, you know, that was always important. Money was important. It takes money to fight wars. Um, trade in terms of control of Pacific ports. And this was especially important for the Confederates because they really needed to be able to ship their cotton um, out of some kind of port and their ports in the in the Gulf and the Atlantic were being shut down um, by a US naval blockade already very early in the war. So they wanted to control those Pacific ports. Um, And also for both Northerners and Southerners, they really saw the West as a central feature of their vision of the future. So for the Confederates, they really wanted to have this continental empire of slavery, uh, where slavery would expand all the way to the Pacific. And then possibly once they defeated the union could expand southward, uh, into Mexico and Latin America. Um, For the Union, the West became the center of an empire of free labor. So after they defeated the South, then the Union would um, kind of reestablish its continental empire and build it on um, the distribution of land and free farming. Um, For both of them, these visions uh, were without indigenous peoples, right? They were just completely erased um, from this vision of the future. And so um, their actions in the West really rested on eradicating or removing Native peoples from their homelands um, across the West. And you can really see this if you look at um, John Baylor, who is the first person uh, readers will meet in the book, and then James Carlton, um, who comes onto the scene a little bit later, um, because John Baylor, who was a Confederate in, in command of um, Mesilla in southern New Mexico territory, the first chapter details how um, he led a kind of small group of um, mounted Confederate soldiers into New Mexico, sort of without orders, um, invaded New Mexico territory, took the town of Mesilla, forced uh, the surrender of a uh, Union um, uh, Regiment at Fort Fillmore and established, and this was all in the matter of just a couple of days, um, created and established the Confederate territory of Arizona. Uh, And he saw... Indian campaigns as part of his purpose in the territory. He had been, um, you know, it was kind of loosely called a Texas Ranger during his time in Texas and had really become um, an enemy of Comanches in particular. He had edited a newspaper called The White Man um, and he had ridden around the country kind of whipping up kind of local furor against um, Comanches. And so He saw himself as as an Indian fighter, um, and he saw part of the purpose of the Confederates was to not only take um, the Southwest and then the Greater West for the Confederacy, um, but to also exterminate or remove native peoples. So he did a lot of things in support of that goal. He sent Sherrod Hunter um, and Company A of the Arizona Rangers westward along the Butterfield route, which went right through the center of Apacheria. sent him to go take Tucson and told him to just fight and defeat Chiricahuas wherever he found them. Um, He lent support to the Arizona guards who were a militia guarding the mines at Pinos Altos, which was a mining town right in the center of Mangus Coloradus' territory. Um, he himself got really bored um, while waiting for the the Confederate army to kind of dispatch with Union soldiers farther north in New Mexico in February of 1862. And so he just decided, he rounded up a, um, a bunch of um, Anglo guys and some Hispanos um, in and led just this totally off the books, um, invasion of Mexico, claiming that he was in hot pursuit of Apaches, uh, who had attacked a wagon train in Confederate Arizona. Um, and he nearly provoked an international incident by doing this. Um, he killed two completely innocent Apaches in the town of Corlitos and, you know, just kind of crossed this boundary and took this action on, on, you know, um, kind of claiming that it was um, on behalf of the Confederacy when he had no uh, command to do that and no authority uh, to do that either. Um, and then in, right before he left the territory in March of 1862, he issued this infamous Apache uh, extermination order um, instructing the Arizona guards to lure Chiricahuas into a parlay and ply them with whiskey and then kill all of the men and enslave the women and children. Um, so Confederates, sort of exemplified by Baylor, um did have this idea that their their war in the Southwest um was uh in part with uh the Union and in part with Native people. So for them it was this three-cornered war. Um James Carleton gets a little more attention, I think, on the Union side because he is the uh Union commander who Uh, creates and leads commands uh, the campaigns against the union campaigns against Chiricahua, Apaches, and Navajos beginning in 1863 and extending all the way through the rest of the war. Um, And he was put in command of the department of New Mexico when he arrived at the Rio Grande um, in September of 1862. He initially had thought that he might negotiate peace um, with the Chiricahuas in particular, um, but he ran, his soldiers ran into to them at, at, at Apache Pass in July of 1862 and fought a battle there. And he decided at that moment that he was going to treat them um, as enemies and that he would abandon all treaty making. Um, so he was refusing to recognize um, Native sovereignty and that he would make war upon them first, um, force them to surrender, and then remove them um, to reservations as prisoners of war, um, and that he would use whatever tactics were at his disposal, um, particularly hard war tactics, um, in order to, uh, again, either eradicate or remove Apaches and Navajos so that the Union could take full control um, of the West. Um, You know, they had, uh, by the... Spring and summer of 1862, they had already pushed the Confederates back to Texas. Um, but then it became um, pretty much Carleton's single-minded uh, goal um, to secure uh, the Southwest, in particular, and the larger West for the Union um, by engaging in campaigns against Native peoples. And so, really, what we see is that for for both of these men, for Baylor and Carleton, and for the Confederate and Union interests they represented that the defeat and removal of Apaches and Navajos from their homelands was absolutely pivotal um, to not only kind of the Civil Civil War military campaign writ large, but also to the future visions of their respective nations so that both the North and the South saw Native sovereignty in the West as a challenge and an attempt to subvert um, American imperial power.
1: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: Part two details the eruption of more conflict in New Mexico and, as you just explained, all of these multi-pronged attempts on behalf of the Confederacy and Union to expand westward and push the Apache and the Navajo out of the way. How do indigenous groups respond, adapt, and act in these circumstances? So I think the
0: important thing to remember is that Indigenous groups across the region responded in a lot of different ways. I mean, as we know, there was not one unified kind of Indian America um, at any point um, in, in our history or during the Civil War itself. So this meant that Indigenous groups engaged in the civil war in different ways on different scales kind of across the continent, even um, in the East, as well as the West um, and in kind of the, the trans Mississippi Indian territory in particular Um, you know, some, some groups had little or no contact with union and Confederate troops. And the, the, their experience of the, of the civil war was, was really minimal um, others, like the Dakota in Minnesota and the Navajos um, in, in New Mexico and Arizona, engaged in full-scale war. Um, others kind of had a had a mix of responses. Um, when Carlton first came through Apacheria, um, he was coming from California. Um, his campaign was meant to meet uh, the Confederate soldiers along the Rio Grande and help Um, can be, and the Union soldiers are already there to fully defeat them and push them back into Texas. Um, Carlton had had amassed uh, an army of about 2,000 men um, in Los Angeles by December of 1861, but he was delayed um, by this massive uh, weather event, um, the six-week rainstorm um, that completely inundated California, and it made them, Southern and Northern California, and it made it incredibly difficult for them to move. And so Carlton's um, column actually didn't start moving until March and April of 1862, when the Confederates were already kind of on their way out of, you know, retreating back through New Mexico toward Texas. Um but he was on on his way, and it and his march necessitated um, crossing a and he made it uh, to Tucson by July. Um, but because of the nature of the desert, and this is where you see kind of my um, my position as an environmental historian, really making this argument that the the desert itself really shapes the conflicts in this region um, among all three groups: the Union, the Confederacy, and Native peoples. Um, really shapes it in a much stronger way than a lot of other environments do in other theaters of the war. Um, So in order to manage water supplies, Carlton was using a method of, of um, staggering so that he was just sending smaller uh, groups forward um, every couple of days so that water supplies along the way would not be depleted. Um, Now this was I, an ex, extremely good tactic um, from his point of view and it actually resulted um, in very little loss of life from either dehydration um, or exhaustion along this incredibly long march um, from Los Angeles to the Rio Grande. Um, but what it meant is that that from Tucson, Carlton was sending forwards sort of initially these small groups in the summer of 1862, and they were entering Apacheria in only groups of maybe a hundred or 200. And those were numbers that the Chiricahuas really liked and saw in their favor, which is why we have so many um, kind of confrontations and battles um, at Apache pass, which is uh, the site of Apache spring, which is the only water source uh, between the Dragoon Mountains um to the west, um, and um a spring that kind of uh rises up in the Cook Mountains um further to the east. And so anyone moving through that country has to go through Apache Pass in order to get water, in order to survive this march through the desert. So Carlton sending these these men um through and Chiricahua's at Apache Pass are initially responding in a a couple of interesting ways. I mean, the first people to come through are a very small group of three uh, riders who are carrying messages for uh, Colonel Candy um, from Carleton. And, you know, there's only three of them. So the Chikarikawas choose um, uh, a violent response in in that case. And they um, attack this small group. They kill uh, Chavez and Wheeling, and, and Jones kind of rides for it and gets away. And is ultimately captured by the Confederates um, along the Rio Grande. Um, just a week later, another contingent um, who are out on a reconnaissance um, under Edward Eyre, a slightly larger group, um, come to Apache Pass. And at this point, Cochise, who is there, decides that he'll have a negotiation. And so they have a parlay and he and in that he learns something very interesting, which is um Air tells him that Carlton is at Tucson with a huge army. And and this is something new. There had not been um there had been a lot of movement coming east to west through a pacheria, um, gold miners in particular, but also military personnel moving that way. There were mail coaches and some migrants moving the other direction. But this is really the first time that Chiricahuas are seeing a massive army uh, come from this direction um, through their territory. And so... Uh, they do, uh, the Chiricahuas do kind of capture a couple of soldiers and do kill them, but air decides not to stick around. And so there's no battle at that point, but it's an interesting sort of approach, um, on Cochise's kind of part, um, to sort of see what the situation is. Cause I think he could tell at this point that this was unusual And, and it was also at this point that he sent out writers, uh, to other leaders of other Chiricahua bands to come and help him. And so he sends word to Magus Coloradus, um, Magus Coloradus comes with, um, all of his fighting men to Apache pass. Um, and this is where the battle, um, occurs on July 15th and 16th of 1862. Um, and again, this is a slightly larger group, but not, um, overly large, um, of California soldiers led by Thomas Roberts. And there's a pitched Battle, you know, for two days trying to get access um, and control of Apache Spring. And the battle actually ends up, um, even though it was pretty evenly um, matched, uh, the Chiricahuas end up losing control of that spring um, in the end, and Mangus Coloradus is injured. And from this point on, this kind of shifts um, Chiricahua strategies in the region because uh, they no, no longer have access to this pivotal resource. Um, when Carlton comes through a couple of weeks later, he leaves a very large contingent of soldiers there to build uh, what be, what would become Fort Bowie. Um, so the Union has control of this water source um, for the rest of the 1860s. Cochise um, kind of goes off, uh, establishes a strong a stronghold in the Dragoon Mountains, and and operates kind of around there and in Mexico. Uh, Mangus Coloradus uh, is taken to Hanos in Mexico, where a surgeon operates on him. And he survives this operation. Um, you know, he's this 70-year-old man, and he's been in many, many fights through his life, and he has survived them all. It's sort of amazing. Um, and he decides to return in the in the fall of 1862 to his stronghold, which is further east in New Mexico, and decides that with winter coming on that he is going to negotiate. And he sends word to carlton carlton refuses to negotiate with him and then megas collardist does something pretty interesting which is he goes to the town of pinos altos um the mining town and asks to speak with some people there some miners and other um officials and you know talks with them about the possibility of of a peace agreement just with the town which is an interesting kind of approach uh because you know he wants to have uh you know he wants to be able to plant his crops and he wants them wants to be able to have um you know sort of peaceful winter um with his family and not have to worry about these miners either encroaching on his territory or attacking his camps um so the miners agree because they also would would like peace and so Megas Coloradus goes to try and convince um several of his other uh, fellow leaders of Chiricahua bands, including Victorio and Geronimo, um, to sign on to this peace treaty with him. So here is another uh, strategy. And Mangus Colorados used this strategy a lot during his lifetime. He did not always, um, you know, war was not always his first Act. Um, he often um, negotiated with people either in official treaties or or just agreements. Um, he often had a very kind of rational wait and see approach. Um, sometimes he talked with uh, Indian agents and received rations. Um, so he was a really skilled uh, leader. He he adapted to situations depending on on what he thought would kind of work best for his people and um how he could um do right by his people um and in this case uh that kind of attempt to make peace and to kind of settle into some sort of established nonviolent maybe a trade relationship or maybe just the relationship of uneasy neighbors uh in a pachuria uh with these um anglos and and americans um you know, this actually backfired on him um, because in the end, they ended up betraying Mangus Colorado's, arresting him, um, and taking him to Fort McLean, um, which is a little further south. Um, because unbeknownst to to Mangus Coloradus, James Carlton had officially launched a campaign against him and the rest of the Chiricahua Apaches. So there were hundreds of California Column soldiers kind of on their way to Southern Apacheria. Um, at this moment that he's trying to, to galvanize Chiricahuas for a peace treaty, um, the Americans are very much intent in, on
2: making war upon him. And we see that come to fruition in part three, which recounts a particularly cataclysmic moment in a civil war in the West, and that is the death of Mangus Colorados in 1863 at the hands of Union officers. How does this transform the Union's war against Apatria and patcheria's war against the Union?
0: Yeah. So when, when Mangus Coloradus comes in um, to have a meeting with um, the miners at Pinos Altos in January of 1863, you know, he thinks he's, he's coming there to negotiate a peace treaty. And uh, he approaches the camp and a bunch of soldiers kind of rise up around the, out of the brush and point their guns at him and take him prisoner. And he, you know, warns off his people and tells them to get out of there, um, to basically go back um, to their homelands. Victorio, uh, who was Warm Springs Apache, was with him. Um, Geronimo had had said that he would be with him, but he would wait it out um, at Stein's Peak, which was further west. So Geronimo was not present. Um, but they only took Mangus Colorado as prisoner, took him to Fort McLean, um, where he met um, Joseph Rodman West, who who Carlton had sent uh, to lead this campaign against the Chiricahuas. And, you know, West couldn't even believe it. I mean, the campaign hadn't even really started yet. And already they had been able to capture Angus, Colorado. Um, I, I think West was pretty astonished by this. And I think he thought uh, that what that meant was that the, the campaign was over, that the Chiricahuas, um, you know, with the capture of their of their most prominent war leader would kind of give up Um and, but they really underestimated um, and completely misunderstood the nature of of Chiricahua society, um, and you know this was part of part of their problem as well. But uh, Mangus Colorado was was taken prisoner and and put in a kind of ruined building. Fort McLean had been destroyed when when American soldiers had left it um, in 1861, and soldiers began to torture him that night. They were throwing rocks at him. They were. Um, kind of heating up their bayonets and pricking his feet. Uh, And when he kind of rose up to object and, you know, say, I'm not a child to be trifled with, um, the soldiers shot him uh, and killed him. And so that was the kind of first action was the murder of Mangus Coloradus. Um, The official story was um, among, you know, Union officers, Joseph Rodman West wrote to Carlton that um, Mangus Coloradus was shot while trying to escape. Um, but mm. that, uh, was not true. And, um, the, what really pushed Chiricahua's over the edge, uh, when they heard about this was that soldiers had taken Mangus Colorados's body out, um, and buried it in a gully. Um, but a couple of days later, a regimental surgeon had gone out, um, and dug him up and then uh, brought him back, um, to the tent and, and cut off his head. And, boiled it, uh, in a big black kettle in order to, um, have the skull, which he later sent, he, he carried it around with him actually for several years in the Southwest. And then he sent it, um, eastward to a phrenologist to study it, uh, and to kind of try and, you know, the phrenology was the study of kind of all the shapes of the head to try and figure out your character as a person. Um, so, The surgeon did this. And when Chiricahua found out about this, they were enraged um, because in their culture, you move through eternity with the body you have when you die. And so for them, this was kind of a double betrayal. Like not only had Mangus Coloradus been betrayed by these miners at Pinos Altos and, and the U.S. Army, but then they had done this terrible thing to his body that meant that his afterlife would be unsettled. And so while Joseph Rodman West thought, oh, this is going to be the end of the campaign, actually, it was the beginning of the campaign for the Chiricawas And Cochise and Victorio and Geronimo, basically for the next 20 years, um, you know, defended their territories against American incursions, launched raids and attacks on various towns um, in southern New Mexico and Arizona, and also in northern Mexico. Um they, every now and again, they would uh, be captured or have a treaty negotiation, but they always resisted um, being removed to reservations, um, especially reservations that were far from their homelands. Um, and the end of the conflict didn't come um, for the U.S. Army and the Chiricahuas until the mid-1880s. And it all stems from this point, the sort of Civil War action and the murder of Mangus Colorado.
2: Much like the conclusion of the American Revolutionary War several decades earlier, the Civil War's impact among indigenous nations, as you just mentioned, continued to linger well after 1865. Manuelito, Juanita, and the Diné are forced to make difficult choices here. How and why did the Diné adapt to further American encroachment after the Union's victory?
0: So this is the the Union's campaign against um, the Diné, the, the Navajos, uh, was much more successful in their view um than their campaign against um the Chiricahuas uh in the south in Carlton had sent Kit Carson, who is another uh one of the nine people who readers will meet um in the book. He sends Kit Carson out in the fall of eighteen sixty three to launch a hard war against the navajos and and i you know i think the the goal was to bring them to battle um, but uh, Navajos, you know, like, uh, Apaches as well, you know, they, they never entered a battle. Uh, they knew they couldn't win. They, they always, um, would launch attacks and go into battle if they had a strength in numbers, um, and, uh, a strong position in terms of, um, environment, they were in control of a water resource or they were, um, had the high ground in some way. Um, and so, you know, Carson, Kit Carson was riding through uh, Dine Bikéyah with a group of about five or 600 um, soldiers. And that's a lot of fighting men. And so most uh, Navajo bands responded to this not by uh, meeting them in battle, but by scattering and taking their people with them um, in order to establish a place of safety. And sometimes they would uh, raid uh, corrals or other camps. Um, during this period. But most of the time, their strategy was one of evasion. And it wasn't until January of 1864, when Kit Carson launched a winter campaign uh, in Canyon de Chez, that large numbers of Navajos decided uh, that in order to survive, they were going to have to surrender. Because Kit Carson's campaigns had been successful. In fact, they hadn't been able to bring Navajos um, to the battlefield but they had been able to destroy a lot of their crop lands which destroyed all of the crops that would feed Navajos through the winter um, and they had destroyed a lot of hogans their winter houses the permanent housing and um, and other kind of home sites and other um, you know 3,000 peach trees which were not destroyed during this campaign but a little bit Later, um, but the peach trees in canyon de che, um which had been you know a great source of diet diversity for navajos um especially in the winter and the springtime so um by the time Carson went to Canyon de Chez in January of eighteen sixty four many Navajos were starving, um many were already vulnerable uh the hard war campaign had had its psychological effect in proving that the army, the U S army was going to come and keep on coming. Um, so over the course of a couple of months um, from January to about April or May, um, 1864, um, somewhere between six and 8,000 Navajos surrendered um, to the U S army and were forcibly removed um, to Basque Redondo, which was a reservation that James Carlton had picked out in along the Pecos River in central New Mexico, um, and that was a 400-mile march. So um, this is another one of those experiences that that people have in this region. Although this, this one was obviously a forced removal and not a voluntary march, but they were moving through this very vast uh, desert landscape um, with not a lot of of material resources at hand, and there was a lot of suffering on that march um and a and a very large death toll. Um so from this point on, um, there are still uh Navajos who remain in Dine Bekeya, Juanita and Manuelito um are two of them and their um and their band who remain as James Carlton calls them fugitive Navajos um until 1866. Uh and it's important to remember that not all um Navajos did go to Basque Redondo. Um, we don't have hard numbers, but some, uh, historians think somewhere between 15 to 20%, uh, did not go. They managed to stay out. They managed to evade, uh, the U S army, um, through this entire period. Um, so the people who did go to Basque Redondo, however, um, Were able um, to survive and to persist. Again, there was a very high mortality rate, um, but there was a large community there. Um, They did what they could in order to survive. You know, they were being forced to live in ways that were completely contrary to their own way of life. Um, At Bosque Redondo, they were forced to farm huge tracts of land um, in monocrop agriculture, which is not something they. Did traditionally. They were forced to live in dirt huts, um, in close proximity to one another, which again is not the way they chose, um, to arrange their kind of built environment in Dina Vikea. Um, they had to adjust to eating rations, which were kind of flour based, which is not something that, that they were used to eating. Um, but they adapted to that. Uh, and they were forced to send their children to school, um, to learn English, um, and also there were some missionaries there who were trying to to Christianize them, um, but they resisted in a variety of way a variety of ways. Um, they counterfeited ration tickets. They manipulated um, the labor system to procure more, more food from the Union Army. Um, they hunted off reservation without passes, uh, and they also. Um, Initiated a series of large scale breakouts where um, band usually leaders of bands like Manuelito would gather up their people and then just leave the reservation in the middle of the night in a group of maybe two or three hundred. Um, and the Union Army was able to hunt down um, most of these groups, um, but uh, not all of them. Um, some of them succeeded in in getting away. Um, they also, whenever Bosque Redondo became controversial quite early on, mostly because it was um, incredibly expensive. And so the U.S. Congress was really interested to know why it was costing so much to incarcerate um, what became, you know, around between eight and ten thousand Navajos in this place. And so there were a lot of congressional representatives who came in over the course of a couple of years in the 1860s to kind of check out the situation And at every point, um, Navajos were asked about their experiences. And at every point, they're completely consistent. They told the truth about everything, Um, about the high rates of disease, about the mortality rates, about the overwork, about women who were raped um, and, you know, babies who had died of exposure and starvation, the lack of wood to build houses and fires. Um, And ultimately, this meant that they were able, um, in a final kind of visit from congressional representatives, um, William Tecumseh Sherman, crazily, uh, was one of those representatives, um, who came in May of 1868 to negotiate a treaty uh, with the Navajo. And and the U.S. government wanted to send the Navajos um, to Indian territory. They wanted to put them on land that they had actually confiscated from um, confederate native peoples who had fought for the Confederacy um, and were forced to give up their land. Um, And they wanted to put the Navajos there. And the Navajos said, no, we're just, no, we're not going. If, if we're going to leave Bosque Redondo at all, we're going to go back to their homeland. And they were able through the force of argument and through the, you know, the force of their convictions and their willingness, you know, to tell the truth about this place, they were able to negotiate their return. To their homeland um, in June of 1868. And in July, they were able to return um, to Dine Biquilla, which had not been uh, settled by Anglos um, during the time that they, during the four or five years that they had been um, incarcerated at Basque Redondo. And um, when they got back, you know, they had to give up a lot. They signed a treaty. Um, in which they gave up uh, a lot of their rights. It was a kind of bittersweet victory for them, but the treaty did recognize their sovereignty. And over the course of, of the decades after their return, Navajos were actually able to add lands um, to their reservation site that had been, you know, where the boundaries had been placed by the treaty in 1868. And today, they are the largest reservation in the nation. Um, because of that. They have grown um and expanded their power in the region. They're one of the only indigenous groups to have been able to do that. Um, so the story for them, I think, of their experience of the, the Civil War in the West in Abasque Redondos is an incredibly important moment for them in their history. It's one of great suffering, um, but it is also one of survival and persistence.
2: You conclude with a powerful yet oft overlooked reality of the Civil War's continental scope that, quote, these struggles for power in the West exposed a hard and complicated truth about the Union government's war aims, that they simultaneously embraced slave emancipation and native extermination in order to secure an American empire of liberty, end quote. When the histories in your book are placed in conversation with other simultaneous processes of expansion and elimination, like the U.S. Dakota War, We really see Union imperialism in its exterminationist, expansionist entirety. How does this change the way that historians should be looking at, understanding, and explaining the Civil War? So, this is, I think, really the most important point,
0: um, not only of the Three Cornered War, but of a lot of the work that's been coming out on the Civil War West recently. Um, That kind of shifting our viewpoint from the Eastern Theater to the Far West. and Civil War histi- history really reveals that the Civil War was a continental conflict. You know, it was about the North and the South, but it was also about the West. And that it was a continuation of the imperialist aims and actions of the United States, not a pause in that process. Um, you know, Ari Kalman was the first one to really argue that the Civil War was an Indian war in this region um, in Misplaced Massacre, and and several scholars since then have begun to kind of take up this argument and really kind of make the case that that this if if we ignore the West, we sort of ignore this whole component of the war that was important in shaping not only its military campaigns, but also political action. Um Because the Union Army is able to, you know, shove the the Confederates back to Texas, the Union Congress is able to pass the Homestead Act and the Pacific Railway Act um, and also create the Department of Agriculture. And those actions they took in or in, you know, kind of the pursuit of this larger vision of a an entire continent settled by white farmers um and you know totally um it, totally sort of absent of native peoples um and that in conjunction with the military campaigns, these political acts, we're going to get this done um so that's one thing that the view from the west does um it also shows us hard war at work in in another context, um not just in you know South Carolina or in um you know the Missouri guerrilla war um but in uh official union campaigns targeting native peoples um interestingly and i haven't talked about this very much really but it also shows us multiracial armies that were in place um for the union long before the emancipation proclamation um the the union army that fights the confederates at valverde um and apache canyon and glorieta are armies that include um both hispano volunteers and militia um and all, but and also um anglo volunteers and army regulars uh and in some cases um native scouts and spies auxiliaries um, and kit carson uses utes um in his campaign um against navajos which uh, is fought predominantly also by the first New Mexico which uh, is mostly hispano soldiers from New Mexico. Um, so that's an interesting component that we that we haven't talked about and it really kind of changes uh, our view I think of um, in the Civil War writ large of, of what constitutes armies and also what constitutes um, citizen soldiers uh, And one of the other things and I, and I haven't talked about this very much either, but in the book, I do go into it a bit, which is that in the far West, the the issue of slavery is quite complicated um, because here there was a very long history of indigenous and Hispano enslavement um, fueled by warfare and raiding and trading a huge kind of Southwestern trade network um, and enslaved peoples. Um, And there was a range of unfree labor practices, including peonage. And this is one of the reasons actually that Henry Sibley and the Confederates thought that, once they got into New Mexico, that Hispano-New Mexicans would be amenable to an alliance uh, with the Southerners um, because they were slave owners. Um, That turned out to be a wrong assumption, mostly because um, Hispano-New Mexicans hated Texans more (laughs) than they loved slavery. Um, But they had had passed a pro-slavery law in 1859. They later got rid of it. They repealed it. Um, But... Many Hispanos kept their their Navajo and Apache slaves until eighteen sixty seven when the federal government felt they had to actually pass this act called the Peonage Act in order to enforce the Thirteenth Amendment in New Mexico territory. So here again is a much longer sort of time frame um, if we're thinking about uh, the history of emancipation during the Civil War. If you bring the West into it, it brings in a kind of different viewpoint that really complicates uh, the trajectory that we're used to talking about. Um so I think when we see the war from this this region that not many people know about um that you know is often ignored in military histories actually most civil war histories if you look at a book and and it's either a general synthesis or history of the war or a textbook the map of the war actually ends in Texas. It sort of cut, it cuts down sort of pretty neatly almost along the 100th meridian like like the half of the country doesn't even exist uh during the war, so of course, nobody thinks that anything happened um in in this part of the continent because they're not actively seeing it um but when we redraw that map, when we put the you know the Pacific coast and um the northwest and the southwest kind of and the you know Rocky Mountain plains back into this picture. I think it creates a much more, a much fuller and more complete um, and more complex image of the Civil War and its aims.
2: Well, Megan, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we wrap up, I have one last question for you. What are you working on now? So I uh,
0: have just started writing the next project, uh, which is called This Strange Country, uh, Yellowstone and the Reconstruction of America. Uh, so it is in some ways kind of a sequel to the three cornered war, um, in that it is the story of the 1871 scientific survey, uh, to Yellowstone, uh, which culminated in the 1872 Yellowstone act, which created the first national park in the world. And the people who are involved in this story, um, are politicians, they are scientists, um, they are business, uh, men and editors. Um, and there are also, um, several native leaders who are resisting, um, this kind of survey and these kinds of, um, these acts that we would consider, you know, sort of conservation, um, or kind of environmentally focused, uh, acts resisting them as yet another incursion. Um, into their own territory and an attack on their own sovereignty. Um, So I'm investigating in this, um, in this book, again, a lot of these complex uh, interactions between different communities in the West, um, sometimes violent, sometimes not, um, but all trying to exert power and control over a place and, and use it um, to, to find define not only their own kind of um, boundaries
2: of power, but define who they are as a people. Megan, that sounds like another important project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thanks, Annabelle.